0: well good morning. good morning it is such a privilege to be here with you all today I've Been looking forward to this day for quite some time and so thank you for hosting me thank you for letting us uh over on the north end of town borrow pastor josh and uh it's just a privilege to be here so i'm going to invite you now to grab your bible with me and uh would you turn with me to the gospel of john the gospel of john and we will be looking at verse uh, chapter three verses 1 through 15, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now, I've been told by Pastor Josh that the gospel of John is not a gospel you're unfamiliar with, and so I hope I'm not repeating any, you know, anything that Josh said. So, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, I've entitled our sermon this morning, Nick at Night. We're going to look at the story of a man by the name of Nicodemus. So, uh, again, would you pray with me? We'll dive in uh, to the word together. So let's pray uh, together, church. Father, I thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. Um, I pray that you would help me to dare not take it lightly. Lord, thank you for the privilege of preaching it here at Christian Bible Church. Lord, I praise you for the dear saints who labor here alongside us at Grace Bible Church in this community for the sake of the gospel that unites us. Father, I'm reminded, as Paul says, Um, I I think of of this church when he says that that they have labored side by side with us in the gospel together, whose names are in the book of life. Father, I pray for uh, our churches that they would continue to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, because there is one body and one Spirit, there is one Lord and one faith, one baptism and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God, we pray this morning that you would show us by your Spirit what it means to be born again to everlasting life. Show us what Jesus means when he speaks of eternal life and how he brings that about through the Holy Spirit from the story of Nicodemus. And we pray it uh, together in the powerful name of our risen God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said this morning, amen. And amen. Well, in the early 1700s, there was a 21-year-old Oxford student. And he came to the realization that he was living a life that was not pleasing to God. In fact, he was living a rather debauched, sort of self-centered, wicked life. And he realized that his life needed to be changed. And so he resolved on his own to try to change his own behavior, to try to change his life, clean up his life. He denied himself uh, every luxury that a college student had. He he began to fast twice a week. He began to give money to the poor. In fact, he even wanted to deny himself a bed, and so he would sleep on a cold, hard stone floor. But despite his efforts to become a better man, in his own words, he felt like he was only putting a coat of paint on rotten wood. And so his friend, Maybe you've heard of this gentleman. His name is Charles Wesley. His friend was Charles Wesley, and Charles Wesley gave him a little book which was on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he read that book, and and after reading that book, he was, in his own words, born again. In fact, and I quote, when I read this book, a ray of divine light instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not until then, did I know that I must become a new creature. This man's name is George Whitfield. And if you know your American history, you know that George Whitfield was one of the key preachers, one of the key leaders of, of what is called the first great awakening in the United States. In fact, he was um, an itinerant preacher. And so he would travel on horseback from town to town, mile after mile across this great land. And he preached over 18,000 sermons. Now here's the catch. Many of those sermons were on the same piece of scripture. John 3, 3. In fact, he would preach the same sermon week after week. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so one of his friends, who was often traveling with him, one day asked him, he he said, George, why is it that you just keep saying, why do you keep on preaching the same sermon? That you must be born again. And you know what George said to him? George said to him, well, because you have to be born again. That's what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 3 in the story of Nicodemus. So if you have your outline, I think there's maybe a little sermon outline in your bulletin. Uh, Three-point sermon, as all good sermons are. Uh, Number one, we're gonna see in verses one and two the context of this conversation. And so John sort of gets us warmed up to look at this conversation. So there's the context in verses one and two. And then we'll see the conversation itself. And it's a lengthy conversation in verses three through 15 which of course leads up to John three sixteen, which is the most famous Bible verse of all. We'll see the context, we'll see the conversation. And then I'd like to close with three conclusions, three applications that we can learn from this conversation for our lives today. So let's begin with point number one as we see the context of this conversation with Jesus, Nick at night. This is God's word to us again, starting in verse one. Now there was a man, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, in these opening verses, we learn quite a bit about who this man is we learn several things about Nicodemus. And so notice in verse 1, quickly, we first of all see that he was a Pharisee. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know quite a bit about the Pharisees. They were a religious, sort of zealous group of the Jews in the first century. In fact, they were so zealous for the Old Testament, they were very zealous for the tradition of the elders. And so they were strictly uh, religious. They cared about Uh, religion, religious activity. Not only that, uh, but they were very moral people. The the Pharisees sort of uh, prided themselves on keeping God's law. So they were moral. They were very self-righteous, as we see in the Gospels. Um, Politically, in that landscape, they were very politically conservative. Um, And so that's who Nicodemus belonged to. He was a Pharisee. But we also learn a a little bit of, of something about Nicodemus by his name. In fact, the name Nicodemus means conqueror of the people. And I think that's related to the fact that, as you see in verse 1, he was a ruler of the Jews. Likely that means that he was a member of the prestigious Jewish Sanhedrin. He was um, highly regarded, one of the highest ranking Jews, if you will, in Jesus' day. And so here is a man who is highly religious Here is a man who is highly moral. Here is a man who is very strict and uh, powerful and influential. And I I think we can assume that he was also very wealthy as well. In fact, we learn in verse 10, Jesus is going to call him a teacher of Israel. And so he is highly educated. And so here is Nicodemus. Let's let's get a good picture of who this guy is who is coming uh, to have an audience with Jesus in the middle of, of the night. He is wealthy. He is powerful. He is moral. He is religious. He is very politically conservative. He is influential. He knows his Bible, you would think, inside and out. So this is Nicodemus. This is the kind of of person that some may think clearly this guy is right with God. He's okay with God, right? Wrong. Jesus is going to say in the very next verse, you're not right with God you need to be born again. Friends, this is the kind of person that we often, too, are tempted to look at in our congregations, in our community, and we might think that they are right with God. And yet Jesus will emphasize over and over again in this passage, you must be born again. Now, as we look into verse two, we see that he approaches Jesus by night. And we don't know why. John doesn't tell us, but I think it's fair to say it's likely because, well, he's afraid to be seen with Jesus in the daylight. He, he, he might be a bit ashamed to be meeting with Jesus. His peers may not like this. And so he seeks an audience with Jesus at nighttime. Of course, it's physically night, and yet you know the, the gospel of John so well. You know that oftentimes that nighttime in John's gospel is symbolic, it, it, it points us not just to, to physical darkness, but to spiritual darkness as well. And so I think the picture that John is painting is that Nicodemus, spiritually speaking, is in the dark. He, he doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. He, he doesn't understand the necessity of the new birth. And he comes with Jesus, and he offers a respectful, uh, a respectful greeting, right? He, he is respectful of Jesus, but this greeting is less than appropriate For who Jesus really is. He says, he he just thinks Jesus is one who has come from God, sort of like a prophet of old. But but as we work our way through the text, we're going to see that Jesus is not just a a prophet. No, no, he is from heaven. He is God himself incarnate. And so this is the context of the conversation. So how, how does Jesus respond to this nighttime visitor? Well, let's take a look at point number two in our sermon, the conversation. We see this ongoing conversation in verses 3 through 15. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 3. Jesus answered him. He cuts right to the chase. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and I can see Jesus pointing his finger right at Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot... See the kingdom of God. Friends, this had to be a shock for Nicodemus to hear, for certainly, himself included, Jews in that day thought that it was their birthright. It was their birthright to be in the kingdom of God. Of course Nicodemus thought that he was right with God. Of course Nicodemus thought that he was a part of the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus emphatically declares that only a supernatural birth, that only a a supernatural, a, a second birth in a sense in the spiritual realm guarantees a person kingdom entrance. That is being born again. Now, this, of course, is a very physical, natural image of of a woman giving birth to a child. And and this idea of being born again is a natural picture of a spiritual reality. The New Testament has various names for new births. Uh, It's it's called conversion at times. It, It is also called regeneration. But Nicodemus doesn't understand this image, doesn't he? Uh, Jesus says, you have to be born a second time. You have to be born, in in, in a sense, from above. But Nicodemus is is purely thinking in the natural realm. He's thinking about being physically born. He doesn't get it. So take a look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Right, Jesus says, you need to be born again, and it goes right over his head. How is that? Po- what? I'm not going to climb back into my mother's womb. This doesn't make any sense at all. I, I really like what the, um, the commentator Warren Weersby writes on this point. He says, the situation is no different today, and maybe you've been in this circumstance. When you talk with people about being born again, they often begin to discuss their family's religious heritage. I go to this church, I go to that church. Or their church membership, or or religious ceremonies, and so on and so forth. That's that's what Nicodemus is doing. So Jesus wants to clarify for Nicodemus and for us what he means by the new birth. And so he clarifies that this is a spiritual birth. It is a supernatural rebirth in verses 5 and 6. So let's read the text together. Jesus answered Truly, truly, I say to you, he says that several times in this conversation, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, there is some ambiguity here as to what exactly... Jesus means, but I think Jesus means in verse 6 something like this, that one must be born physically, like we all are, born of water, and we have to be born spiritually, that is of the Spirit. Jesus is saying that physical birth and spiritual birth are not the same thing. They are different things. Everybody, of course, is born physically, but he's saying not everyone is born again Spiritually, And I think verse 6 then supports this sort of interpretation. I think verse 6, Jesus means something like this. When, uh, when, when human beings give birth, they give birth to what? Well, of course, they give birth to other human beings, right? That's how it works. A, a woman gives birth to something that is, well, like her, human in nature. But, but it's, it's similar with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit gives rebirth to someone, what is born is, well, it's spiritual in nature, Next, the conversation continues in verses seven and eight. Jesus tells Nicodemus that that the necessity of this new birth, it should not surprise him. He is a teacher of Israel. He is a spiritual leader in the land. This should not surprise him and I could, but I won't, but I could go into several Old Testament passages that speak of the Spirit's movement and, and how the Spirit does well in a sense what Jesus is describing, brings dead bones to life. That's the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament so often. He says, you shouldn't be surprised by this. And, and then in verse eight, he, he's gonna share an illustration. He, he's gonna illustrate what the, 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 the new birth of the Spirit is like. It's sort of like the, 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 the blowing of the wind. He's going to use a word play because the word in Greek can mean both spirit and wind. So let's read in verse seven. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. There's the illustration. Here's the application. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit so here we are living in eastern central illinois we are not unfamiliar with strong wind are we right we know what it's like to walk outside and to be almost blown over by 50 mile per hour winds i i was talking this just as we uh, started I, i'm from south texas and i grew up on the gulf coast and so we had perpetual wind all the time it was always windy as the wind was blowing in uh, off the gulf coast we know what it's like to not only hear the wind, you don't see the wind per se, but what do you see? You see its effects, do you not? You feel its effects. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this new birth, this new birth, the the origins are unseen, but its effects, oh, oh, but its effects are felt and seen. When the Spirit sovereignly blows upon a person's heart and they come to faith in Jesus, You can see the results. Nicodemus responds in verse 9, and he is, in a sense, dumbfounded. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He has a bewildered question. And Jesus then offers what I would call a sort of mild rebuke that such an esteemed teacher of Israel would not understand such Old Testament imagery and reality. Verse 9, Nicodemus Said to him, How can these things be? He's sort of throwing up his hands. He's saying, What are you talking about? How, how can this be true? Verse 10 Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. It, it, it's sort of like this it's sort of like maybe an elementary school principal. Having a conversation with one of his or her elementary school teachers because the the elementary teacher doesn't know the ABCs. That's what Nicodemus is saying. You're a teacher of Israel, but you don't know your spiritual ABCs. Jesus continues in verses 11 and 12. He adds that Nicodemus did not believe his testimony. In fact, he speaks in plural language, we, and I think he's referring to God the Father and to himself and to the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you are not believing what I am saying to you about the necessity for you to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And he says, nor do you understand this earthly imagery. He says, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of give you low-hanging fruit. I'm trying to describe spiritual realities with earthly images of, of the wind and of, and of birth. And he says, you're just not, you're not getting it. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. I think he's speaking of the Father and the Spirit and himself. and, And bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, I'm trying my best. I'm, I'm using language to, to help you understand these spiritual realities, but you are not believing and you are not receiving my words. And so the conversation is about to end in verses 13, 14, and 15. And these, I think, are key verses for us to understand. Friends, why is it that we should believe Jesus' words? Why should we believe his testimony that we and Nicodemus must be born again in order to receive eternal life. Who is Jesus that that he is to be believed? Well, he he gives at least two reasons. And the first is in verse 13. So take a look at that with me if you have your Bibles open. In in verse 13, we should believe Jesus' words on the necessity of a new birth because he came from heaven. He came from heaven because he is eternally God. And so because he came from heaven, he can speak to heavenly realities. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from where? From heaven. The Son of Man. That's language, son of man from Daniel chapter 7, of a heavenly divine human being who would receive a kingdom from God. And so he is essentially saying, listen, Nicodemus, I'm telling you the truth. I know you're religious. I know you're moral. I I know you think that you are right with God, but you are not. You need to be born again by placing your faith and trust in me. and, And you should listen to me because I have been to heaven. I have come from heaven. It, it would be like this, if, if I could maybe illustrate it. It, it would maybe be, maybe be like Neil Armstrong. We all know who that is. Just imagine Neil Armstrong returning uh, from the moon to earth. And he's back on earth, and we are questioning him. What is it like to be on the moon? What is it like to step on the moon? What is it like to jump on the moon? And he starts to talk about it. And what if we were to say, "Nah, that sounds great and everything," but I just don't know if that's true, right? I don't. You just pulling my leg, right, Neil? And what would he say to you? I've been there, right? I have been there. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, "Listen, I can speak to heavenly realities because I have been there." But then there's a second reason why we should believe Jesus, and it's it's found in verses 14. In 15, and it's because of what he is going to do. Well, in that context, it, it, it would be what he was about to do at the end of his three years of ministry or so. He would hang on a cross, he would die for the sins of all humanity. He would be lifted up so that if anyone would trust in him and in, in him alone, they would have eternal life. That's, that's why we should believe Jesus' words. Let's read the text together. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. We'll talk about that here in a moment. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. Speaking about his cross. Towards what end? Friends, why is it that Jesus must be lifted up upon the cross? Verse 15. That whoever anyone, Nicodemus, me, you, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a reference to an Old Testament passage. In Numbers chapter 21, there is an event, and I'll sort of make it short and sweet. Uh, God's people murmured. They rebelled against him in the wilderness, and so he sent fiery serpents to judge them. And the serpents were spreading throughout the camp and they were biting people and people were dying. And as the plague was spreading, Moses cried out to God and God said, this is what you should do. You should make, you should make a serpent. You should make a serpent and you should put that bronze serpent on a pole and you lift that pole up in the sight of all the people." And if the people are dying, if they are snake-bitten, if, 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 if they are about to die, all they have to do, if they want to live, is to look up on that snake, lift it up on the pole, and they would live. They don't have to work for it, they don't have to walk, they don't have to touch it. All they have to do is have the gaze of faith... Look upon that which is lifted up, and they would have life. Friends, Jesus is saying that he would do that, but to a much greater degree. Jesus says that his cross would be like that. He's saying that we, all of us, humanity, we have been bitten with sin's venom, and that we, like the Israelites of old, are dying that we are spiritually dead, that we will experience God's wrath and God's judgment unless he does something for us on our behalf to intercede. And friends, that's exactly why he sent Jesus. That's exactly why Jesus came, so that he would be lifted up on the pole like the snake so that we would not die physically, but that we would avoid dying spiritually. And all we do... All we have to do is look upon Jesus, lift it up upon the cross with simple faith and trust, and we get what? Eternal life. We get eternal life. And so we've seen this morning, verses 1 through 15, the context of the conversation. We've seen the conversation with Nicodemus itself. I'd like to, to close with three conclusions from this passage. Um, what does it matter? What, what can we Learn, as it were, from this text. Well, there are so many, but I, I would just like to suggest three conclusions. Number one, they each relate to the new birth. Number one, the new birth is necessary for eternal life. We see that in verse 3, we see that in verse 5, and we see that in verse 7. In other words, if you want to go to heaven when you die, if you want to be right with God, you must be born again. Nicodemus shows us, Nicodemus is sort of a, a trial, if you will, sort of a test run for how we can't be made right with God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he thinks he's great, he thinks he's right with God. But we see several reasons why we are not right with God. So, so, number one, we can't be saved because we are religious. Friends, Nicodemus was very religious. He did all sorts of religious rituals, all sorts of religious activity, and yet Jesus says, You must be born again. Friends, in our churches and in our community, are there lots of religious people out there? Absolutely. But that does not lead to eternal life. What about the moral card? Nicodemus is a good guy. He is a good person. He tries to do the right thing. He tries to be obedient to God. He works hard at being moral. I don't know if there are too many people out there in our community who probably are more moral than this guy. And yet Jesus looks him square in the eyes and he says, your attempt to be good enough for God is not good enough. You are not perfect. You are not sinless. We, that can't save. What, what about being politically conservative? He's a part of the most conservative political group in the day in Judaism. And that won't save him. He was wealthy. Can, can our wealth uh, buy us a ticket to heaven? No, of course not. And so we learn from Nicodemus all the ways that we can't be saved and the one way that we can be saved. We must be born again. We must trust in Jesus Christ. Stories told of a a 18th century poet. His name was Alexander Pope. He was one of the preeminent poets uh, in that uh, sort of time period. And though he was a a moral person, he he tried to sort of live a good life. He wasn't a Christian. However, he had a a servant, uh, we'll just call him his butler, um, who was a Christian. And as the story goes, Alexander Pope was just frustrated. He was trying to change his his life. He was trying to kind of be a good person, and he was failing. And so, as the story goes, he cried out in frustration, Oh Lord, make me a better man. And his servant, upon hearing it, humbly said to him, Sir, it would be easier for God to make you a new man. There's a difference between becoming a better person and becoming a new person. Nicodemus thought, I just need to be a better person. And what does Jesus say? You need to become a new man. You need to be born again. And so that's the first truth. New birth is absolutely necessary for eternal life. Number two, uh, and this is sort of a a three-pack, new birth is the supernatural, sovereign, and symptomatic act of the Holy Spirit. Let's just unpack that for a moment. First of all, this new birth, being born again, it is a supernatural act of God, the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse three. Jesus says you must be born again. You could actually translate it, you must be born from above. And if that's the meaning, Jesus is saying uh, that God himself must cause you to be born again. In verse six, Jesus reiterates this. He says, that which is born of the Spirit. So clearly, God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit is the divine author of any and every conversion. Any and every conversion. Because friends, the truth of the matter is, is that we are spiritually dead in our sins. We are born into this world, not spiritually neutral. We are born hostile, hostile. Rebels with our fists up towards God. And so we need not just to become better people, we need to be new people. We need the divine life of the Holy Spirit to be implanted in us. I, I, I heard a story that uh, Dwight L. Moody, you may have heard of this guy. There's a school up in Chicago that's named after him. Uh, that, that Dwight L. Moody, when he was training his pastors, that he would have his pastors go out to a cemetery and he would assign them each a tombstone and he would have them preach their sermon to the tombstones. And you can imagine that they were curious, why are we doing this? And I'll paraphrase him. He said, the reason why you're doing that is because this is what we do as pastors. We preach the good news of the gospel to dead men. And only God can make dead people come out of their tombs. That is conversion. It's a supernatural act of the Spirit. Not only that, it's the sovereign act of the Holy Spirit in verse eight. We see this in the language of the wind. If if you have your Bibles open still, and I hope you do, take a look at verse eight. Jesus says, the wind blows, and then my ESV translation, the wind blows where it wishes. That's the thing about the wind, right? It just does whatever it wants. We can't control it. If it's blowing west, we can't make it blow east, can we? No, the wind is sovereign. And the Holy Spirit blowing upon a person, new life is sovereign. It blows where it wishes. It's supernatural, it's sovereign, and because I needed a third S, it's symptomatic, right? This is the symptomatic act of the Spirit. And we see that also in verse eight. You hear the sound of the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, but you see the tree whipping around, do you not? You feel the wind on you. That's how conversion is. That's how the new birth is. You can see the effects when the Holy Spirit blows upon a person's life. They place their faith in Jesus. They're born again, and they begin to change. They're, it's symptomatic. And so th- there are all sorts of things that happen inside a person and outside a person when they are born again. The sin that we so loved and pursued, we begin to hate. The God that we shuck, uh, we, we had our fist high against, we submit to him, and there is a love for God that was no longer there. We take this book and it's no longer boring. We begin to read it and it's like water to the roots of our souls. We love God's word. We begin to come to this place, the church, where the people of God are gathered. And we love the people of God and so much more. In other words, you know when the spirit has blown and a person is born again. As Tim Keller says, you don't ever, he says, don't ever underestimate the power of the new birth to change someone. He says, don't ever underestimate that power. And so we've seen a couple things about the new birth. Uh, It's it's supernatural, it's sovereign, it's, it's symptomatic. We have to be born again if we want to have eternal life. And then third and finally, the new birth is preceded by three things. The new birth is preceded by understanding the gospel, verse 10, receiving the gospel, verse 11, and believing the gospel in verse 12. So let's take a look at that chunk, 10, 11, and 12. While the new birth is certainly a sovereign act of the Spirit, at the same time, from a human perspective, it is preceded by. In other words, what comes before a person is born again? A person understands the gospel truth, they receive it as, oh, yeah, like that is true. I, I, I believe that in a sense. And then there is belief, there is personal faith. Notice that Jesus uh, sort of tells Nicodemus, this is the appropriate response, and you don't have it. Let's just sort of walk through this together. Notice in verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand? And so, new birth begins with an, a, a simple understanding of this gospel. Number two, verse 11 there's not only understanding, but there is a receiving. Jesus says, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive, there's the word, you do not receive our testimony. And so we have to understand certain truths about who God is and who we are and who Jesus is and how we must have faith in the gospel. We have to like intellectually get these things and then we have to receive them. The word in Greek simply means to accept or to buy something as true. So it's one thing to understand and then it's another thing to say, okay, I get this, And I believe that's, like, accurate. Like, I I believe that's true and not false. But then there's a third step, and it it is the all-important step of personal belief. Of personal belief, take a look at verse 12. Jesus said, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so this is how it works in a person's life. This is how it works in a person's experience when we are born again. We have to understand some things. God is holy. We are not. I'm a sinner. I'm not right with God. God's wrath is upon me. I deserve hell and punishment. And if I don't repent and if I don't trust in what God has done to remedy this circumstance, He has sent Jesus out of great love and sacrifice to pay the penalty that we deserve and to rise again to new life. And he offers us this gift as a gift. We can't earn it, we can't work for it. These are the truths that we have to understand. And then we have to say, okay, and I actually think that that's right, that's true. And then we have to say, I want that. So let me get a little more personal. Have you done those things, friends? Have you come to understand the gospel truth of who Jesus is? Have you come to receive those truths as, as like, yeah, that's right? And have you personally repented and trusted in that? Can I just share briefly about my own conversion experience? When I was 10 years old, we started, stopped going to one church and we started going to another. And in that second church, the pastor who was southern twanged had an invitation every Sunday. And he shared the gospel every Sunday. And he invited sinners to repent and to trust in Jesus every Sunday. And for the first time, I understood not only that like God was out there and that you know, like, he loved me and stuff like that, but like, oh wow, I'm not right with God. I, I, kn- I didn't know that. I, genu- I genuinely, I did not know that. And I didn't realize that like Jesus was personal. Like I needed to do something with this person of Jesus Christ. I couldn't just go along my merry way and sit in a pew every Sunday morning and just like wait for lunch to happen, which I'm sure you're waiting for lunch, I'm I'm hungry too. But we're just waiting for lunch to happen and we're just like, okay, that's great and and on we go. No, like I had to, to respond to this person if he really is who he said he was. And so I sat in that pew just like you are as a 10 year old and as an 11 year old and as a 12 year old and as a 13 year old and as a 14 year old and as a 15 year old and as a 16-year-old, until, number one, I had, I had understood the gospel. Number two, I had received it in the sense that, like, oh, this is true. But I fought trusting in Jesus with all my heart. I wanted nothing to do with that. And then one night, before I went to bed, I was 16 years old, and the Spirit... And I broke down. I said, "If this is real, and God, if you're true, and if Jesus is who He says He was, I, I'm, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start. I'm going to start doing this. Right? Come. Would you come? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you I trust in Jesus with all that I know how to do? And guess what happened? I was born again. So, friends, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you, is that true of you? Because there are people all throughout our community, and all throughout our churches, mine included, that they get one and two, but they haven't had three. So where are you? I heard a story many years ago, a prestigious sort of Ivy League, Christian only in name university, liberal theological university. This president of the School of Theology was at a fundraiser in some downtown city, and he was meeting with all the bigwigs with the money, and he was walking downtown, and I guess it must have been Christmas time because there was a Salvation Army kettle. You know the one I'm talking about? Ding, 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 ding. Right? I don't know how they do that, by the way. That would drive me crazy. But ding, 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 ding. And so he stopped, and he he put something in. And this was many years ago, back when like the Salvation Army actually like shared the gospel. And there was, there was a, a, a woman, and she said, thank you, sir, for your donation. Can I ask you a question? He said, sure. And she said, are you born again? And he looked at her, puzzled. And he began to go through his resume, his sort of religious resume. He's like, well, man, I don't, I don't know if you know, but like, I'm the, the, the school of theology of such and such a place, and, I've, you know. and he goes down this list. And she sort of listened, and she took a moment's thought, and she said, it doesn't matter wherever you've been, it doesn't matter whatever you do, or wherever you are, you must be born again. She sort of sounds like George Whitfield, doesn't she, preaching all those sermons, you must be born again. But more importantly, she sounds like Jesus, doesn't she? You must be born. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, by your mercy and grace, enable us to understand, enable us to receive, and enable us to believe. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus and all of God's people set together.